Two, you on eight. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. We're back here again at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference, live with Dr. Bo Burns from the University of Oklahoma, who just gave a great talk on spinal emergencies. Thanks again for having me. Excited to be here. My name's Bo Burns. I'm the George Kaiser Family Foundation Chair of Emergency Medicine at the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think this is a a really good topic to dig deeper in because I don't know how much in the pre-hospital setting we truly think about the atraumatic back pain and the types of emergencies that could be going on there. It's not an infrequent call for us to get back pain calls in the pre-hospital setting. And so I'm really excited to talk about the things that we need to worry about and ask about and do on physical exam for these patients. That's right, Russ. It was eye-opening for me because we've all run the multiple days of back pain, worse today, so they called the ambulance, and then maybe there's even some immobility or a new symptom that kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for them to call 911. And these were some things that I definitely didn't learn in paramedic school, and I definitely don't think about often. To start, you talked just about how back pain is so prevalent within our society and within our healthcare system. You talked about what the spinal emergencies are in the back. And so just quickly run through those, you know, infection, fracture, herniation with compression, cancer with compression, and vascular emergencies of the spine. You talked about the various risk factors, which we'll go into a little more, but age greater than 55, cancer, trauma, coagulopathy, immunodeficiency, any sort of cord compression symptoms or recent spinal procedure or injection. We're going to, I think, dive a little deeper on just a couple of the atraumatic emergencies that we see that can be fairly difficult to diagnose. And the first of that being epidural abscess. Can you talk to us about how these patients can be somewhat challenging for us as medical providers and what risk factors we should think about? And then we'll get into kind of some of the history and physical exam. Sure, you bet. And this is a fun topic to talk about. And I think anything that we can do as clinicians, as educators to help people with the things we know that are difficult, that's great. And I'll take that opportunity any day. So spinal epidural abscess is tough. It is tough. And that's why I wanted to talk about this topic today in that lecture. Frequently, these patients present multiple times, usually in days in a close proximity of times together, and their symptoms become more and more specific as they come in. Usually it's atraumatic, very nonspecific at first, and then they slowly start to develop more particular and specific symptoms associated with infection. And as that abscess grows within that epidural space, if you just visualize the spinal cord in the thoracolumbar region, anything that's growing in space, it's compressed within the bony vertebral canal, it's going to press on the cord. So the faster that grows and the more that grows, the more dramatic those symptoms are going to be. At one point in my career, very early on during my residency, I had a real cavalier attitude towards atraumatic back pain. There'd be sometimes I'd pick up the chart and say back pain, and you kind of almost suppress an eye roll because you're just thinking, oh my word, what is happening? What's going on? I'm not giving this person pain medicine. That's not, you know, I'm going to be a wall, which is the most ridiculous attitude to have. And I just want to really stress to everyone be vigilant, be diligent, replace judgment with curiosity and find out what's going on. 
because the person who's having severe atraumatic back pain is someone who needs our evaluation and our attention. Absolutely. I like that a lot, how you talked about going through this topic and thinking about these emergencies in these cases really changed your approach to these patients and how you saw these patients in the emergency department. You also talked about some history and physical exam tricks for these patients because they can be challenging patients with the amount of pain that they're in to actually get a good physical exam on. Yeah. And, you know, when you're trying to assess strength, that can be a real challenge. So take, for instance, someone who maybe is older with a higher BMI, their skeletal muscle mass is, is not what it used to be. It's a lot less. So having that person do a straight leg raise either passively or actively is going to be really, really difficult. And for our pre-hospital colleagues, you're making the first point of contact. You're the one that's seeing them in their house. I always get a lot of information. It's super valuable from the people who make the first point of contact. Hey, were you able to get them up? Did they stand? Did they require assistance? Or did you have to full assist them onto the stretcher? And that helps me a lot risk stratify who's mobile, who's not mobile. For instance, if they say, oh yeah, they came skipping down the steps and did a cartwheel and jumped on the truck. Okay, that's one thing, but that's not what we're dealing with. We're usually dealing with folks that literally have lost strength or don't have the ability to stand up. And we need that documentation. It's so important. You harped quite a bit on the importance of history and physical exam, which I loved because that's something that pre-hospital providers can do. It doesn't require imaging or diagnostic tools, just your brain, your hands, your eyes, your senses. Yeah. Besides the ability to ambulate or you mentioned stand up from seated position. Are there any other key history and physical exam things that you would love to know when a patient presents to you in the emergency department from an ambulance? Sure. I think for a good number of these patients, they suffer with back pain already as part of their normal day. So, you know, what would be helpful for me was even back to the physical exam part, if they're sitting in a chair, can they extend their leg, extend at the knee engaging the quadricep muscle without getting out of the chair, right? Like that's helpful. That, that tells me something. But asking them, okay, it radiates down both legs. Is that, you've had this before? No, no, this is brand new. This is brand, this started at nine o'clock and it is killing me. Did you have any incontinence? Did you urinate on yourself? Is there new weakness or new radiation distribution? Yeah, it's going down my left leg. It's done that before. I kind of overdid it in the garden yesterday. Okay, that's maybe a little bit different. So Helping us bridge that gap of what's new, what's chronic, why did you call today, right? So one of the phrases, one of the questions that I will work in with patients is, I'm sure you deal with back pain a lot. It would be really helpful for me to know why you called today, like what changed in your mind today? Because as we mentioned, these patients can be difficult to examine. Just ask them, what are you experiencing? I can't walk. Okay, that should get our attention regardless of what our exam findings are. I really like that ask the patient, especially when you're having some difficulty with these physical exams of, hey, I know you can't do this. I know you're in a lot of pain, but are you weak? Do you feel like you're actually weak or is it just so painful that you can't do this? Yeah. You touched on patients that I think we've all experienced that maybe have a high BMI associated with a lot of comorbidities, but one patient population that specifically in Denver we saw a lot were IV drug users. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to that specific risk and why that is such a risk? Well, I think that's a good transition to talk about the risks in general. We need to think about this on every back pain patient. We have somebody who shows up with back pain. We need to think about 
the emergencies, one of which being epidural abscess. What are the other things on history that are going to increase our suspicion, IV drug use being one of those, and why do those? IV drug use, that's going to be hematogenous spread from a cutaneous abscess or, you know, from skin contaminant, right? Dialysis patients, indwelling catheters, recent fracture, recent bacteremia within the last 30 to 90 days, recent antibiotic use, all those things that you think of as you're processing all this information that could have led to the spread of an infectious source to the spine. The other thing that you can see, and I think we overlook this a lot, the diabetic person with an infected foot, the person with a toothache or a tooth abscess, and how many of those do we see, right? We see those a lot. So, you know, one thing I will say about the IV drug use population, and we talked a little bit about this in the lecture, folks with chronic pain, chronic back pain, history of IV drug use can be frequent utilizers in the ED, and sometimes their experience isn't very optimal. So I think we need to really readjust our attitude towards getting a good history, being diligent, and even if the patient is being difficult, it's still our job to do the best by them, even though that's, that's tough to do sometimes. Now, from a risk factor standpoint, diabetes is still number one. Diabetes is still number one, and it's just ahead of IV drug use. So you think about somebody who's a smoker, chronic liver or kidney disease, who's got diabetes, who's got heart disease. I mean, that's a pretty good portion of our patient population. One of my attendings used to say, he said, if the patient is sweating, you should be too. And I, I've thought about that a lot over the years, and that always gets my attention. But atraumatic back pain is becoming higher and higher on that list as well. Yeah, so just to kind of summarize that, the, the way I like to think about it too is, you know, things that could promote spread of bacteria through your bloodstream. So some of these may be direct, like recent spinal procedures or surgeries, but outside of that, a lot of it is going to be hematogenous spread or yeah. spread through the bloodstream. So, you know, IV drug use can introduce bacteria to the bloodstream. Diabetes, you can get diabetic sores, which do that, but diabetes alone will just lower your immune system and just make you more prone to getting infections. So immunocompromised states and chronic kidney disease will do that as well. There's a classic triad that we often talk about, which is fever. That's the infectious component of the epidural abscess, fever, pain, and then some sort of neurologic dysfunction. How often do we actually see all three of these in an epidural abscess? That's one of my favorite things to talk about in this particular disease entity is we, were, is we refer to it as the quote unquote classic triad. And so in your head, you think, oh, is it 80%, 90%, 100%? No, it's like 10%, 10 to 13% is present when these patients are first diagnosed. Now, and makes it so difficult. And that's why I kept stressing this idea of being very diligent, looking at the risk factors and the presentation. And in fact, and there was one slide, I have an animated picture of a person holding their back with back pain. And on the other side of the slide is a picture of an EKG. And really what I was trying to stress is this idea that we need to approach a chest pain patient with the same level of concern and attention that we would an atraumatic back pain patient. To back up a second, we're referring to these things as emergencies, which I think is accurate, but on an ambulance, it still probably doesn't feel like an emergency. Sure. So can you speak a little bit to the morbidity associated with this and why this is such an emergency for these patients? So as the disease progresses, more and more cord compression occurs and direct compression causes ischemia. So what can happen over time is paralysis. And most of the time when these patients have these deficits, they don't recover them. 
So if you're on the EMS side and you're bringing a patient in who has a new onset weakness or whatever their symptomatology is, you can't have a perplexed look. Like, why is this everybody moving like it's the cath lab? Like, what is happening? Well, that's why, because this is a time-sensitive diagnosis and we want to make sure that we're able to help those patients retrieve as much function. And these patients can go on to have osteomyelitis of the spine, have discitis, they can have fractures of the spine, they can be paralyzed, permanently disabled. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen that just don't go well so that we really do want to try to get as many of these as early as we can. You mentioned early on the progression of this disease and how initially it can be very nonspecific without some of these signs that we classically associate with it, which leads to frequent presentations with the healthcare system. So frequent presentations to the emergency department, frequent calls to 911 for the same back pain within a short period of time, and how that should increase your suspicion in these patients. Yeah. And you know, that's something I probably should have hit a little bit more in the lecture was one thing that I've really started doing with our atraumatic back pain patients is I ask them, have you been seen for this recently? In Tulsa, where I live, we have multiple hospitals and there's several hospitals in the suburbs. And, you know, we have Cerner, we have Epic and Epic facilities, of course, are tied together and you can look at the records, but several of the facilities aren't, and we're kind of blind to that. So I ask them, have you been seen for this recently? Because it's going to change the way I'm looking at this. This is your third time to be seen for this? Okay. What did they do in the other times? Okay. What's changed since then? Well, now I'm feeling more weak in my legs. I'm running a fever. I'm, you know, whatever. There's going to be a progression of this. It's going to get worse over time. And my hope is if someone presented with that dramatic of a, a I would automatically MRI them, but I'm paying more attention to that frequent visitor now. Does that mean I MRI everyone that comes back in? Not necessarily. What if their exam's totally normal? They have no risk factors. Their strength and everything's great. Why are you here today? Well, I ran out of my medication for this. Or I went back out and I lifted something and I re-injured it. Okay, you don't always have to MRI every person that comes in. I mean, we understand that. So you've got to put these things in the correct clinical context. These are great questions and information to think about as pre-hospital providers to gather from the scene, from family members who are there on scene and to ask the patient and then relay to the emergency department to increase our suspicion, to hopefully catch this earlier before some of those debilitating morbidity occurs. With that being said, we've identified a patient we feel is at risk. We relay that. What are we going to do in the emergency department for these patients? Usually what will happen, depending on the severity of their symptoms, there'll be a pretty broad workup going on. So for instance, let's say it's a, a diabetic patient who's 70, heart disease, has a recent toe amputation. And you guys re- have those in Oklahoma. I know, it's shocking. <laughs> I'm glad you're sitting down. <laughs> so it, you know, that person with atraumatic back pain, I'm going to be concerned about epidural abscess, right? We're getting blood cultures, doing all the sepsis things that we do, the lactate blood cultures, looking at fluid administration, looking at mean arterial pressures, all that stuff. We're also looking at inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP. And CRP is really shown to be useful and helpful. And I know not everywhere has a CRP that's not a send out, but in the literature, it's showing that a CRP over 30 is pretty indicative that something is going on. Now you got to put that in the right context. If the person doesn't have back pain, if it's from just the foot that I mentioned, okay, that may be just from the foot, from the osteomyelitis in the foot. But in the patient with new onset weakness, atraumatic back pain is writhing around in the bed. I'm now a lot more worried about them. 
And if we diagnose an epidural abscess on MRI, how do they get treated then? That really falls in kind of the spine surgery, neurosurgery realm. Most of these are going to be IR aspiration managed operatively. There's going to be some that, according to my review of the literature, it looks like they try to manage non-operatively. And that's going to vary by worldwide location. And then some of those will fail and still go on to have surgery later. And you mentioned in your talk, a clinical decision tool that we may use in the emergency department to help us decide kind of those gray area cases of who to MRI. I don't think this is a tool that our pre-hospital providers need to use, but I do think it could be something good for them to look up because it does give you an idea of like, what are the things that make me more worried? What was that decision tool? So the decision tool is in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. I believe Dr. Schroyer, S-H-R-O-Y-E-R, was the lead author on that. It's called the S-I-R-C-H search tool, spine infection risk calculation heuristic, which I found really helpful. And again, I use these clinical decision rules when I'm thinking about not doing something. So you can think about the SED rate and the CRP almost like the D-dimer of the spine, right? Like I'm ordering a D-dimer when I don't want to CAT scan someone's chest, right? So in a low-risk patient who has atraumatic back pain, I'm not necessarily getting those inflammatory markers, but with those risk factors, I am. And I use those clinical decision rules when I'm thinking about not imaging someone. When I'm thinking about not getting an MRI, I'm going to put them through that and go, okay, what's their search score? So they found that a search score greater than three was 96% positive on their MRI, which I thought was phenomenal and very helpful for the bedside clinician. The last thing that I just want to add is for the pre-hospital providers listening, the two main systems I've worked in, atraumatic back pain triggers a non-emergent response. So no lights and sirens. So right away that can prime us into this isn't a big deal. Keep your index of suspicion. And then also for agencies out there that respond to lift assists and they try to just help someone up off the toilet or the floor. And then they don't really treat that as an actual patient interaction. Keep a high index of suspicion for these patients because this may be how they present. Oh, I had to call the fire department because I I couldn't get out of bed or off the toilet or out of my chair or whatever. So I just want to plug that for our listeners. And I just wanted to thank you. I thought it was a fascinating topic. Oh, you bet. Good. Yeah, absolutely you know, how we respond to a call can sometimes bias you. And so you got to check those. And, you know, these are emergencies. They don't, you don't necessarily need to drive lights and sirens back to the hospital for them. They're not emergencies within minutes and you don't need to put yourself or the patient at risk. But despite your use of lights and sirens, these are still serious emergencies that are time sensitive. Your talk ended with a brief discussion on cauda equina, which is kind of within the same realm. And if we could briefly just Talk about the anatomy and what cauda equina is, and then we can talk about how these patients present. Sure. So the spinal cord terminates about L1. About L2, there's this what's called the conus medullaris, and then distal to that, L2 to L5, there's this lumbar cistern where these, they're called cauda equina fibers, which is horse's tails, what that means. And then they secure to the sacrum on the phallum terminale. If you see us doing an LP in the emergency department, it's in that lumbar cistern where we have space to draw out fluid. Now, any compression of those nerve roots, L2 to L5 and S1 to S5, can cause what's called cauda equina, which is interesting because it lacks a specific diagnosis. There's over 14 different definitions in the literature of cauda equina syndrome, but among lower extremity weakness and anesthesia of some 
either lumbar or sacral roots, there is bladder dysfunction or bowel dysfunction. And so what you're going to see in those patients is they may say, well, I was incontinent, incontinent of urine. What does that mean? Does that mean you peed on yourself and didn't know about it? That's the dangerous one. That's the one we really worry about. It's like from the overflow incontinence and you've lost the sensation that you have to go to the bathroom and you just pee. Is it stress incontinence from when you cough or sneeze from a weak pelvic floor? Is it an overactive bladder? Is it a mix of those two? Is it a temporary incontinence from a urinary tract infection? You really need to tease those things out. But the way we evaluate that is we have the patient urinate and then we either do a bladder scan or a catheterized specimen to see what the post-void residual is. And if it's greater than 100 mLs, that really needs to get our attention that there's something that's leading to incomplete emptying of the bladder. And could it be from compression of one of those nerve roots? Do those patients have a sensation that they still need to go? The ones I have seen have not. They lose that sensation. And so as it progresses, their bladder fills. They don't know about it and they kind of overflow. And that's the most concerning thing to me is you think, oh man, they peed on themselves. They didn't even know it. So that just indicates to me a more advancing compression of one of those levels. And what's compressing? What's causing this compression? So it can be central disc herniation, which is the most common. So I talked about this in the lecture a little bit. When someone presents with new onset pain down the bilateral legs, that gets my attention for more of a central herniation. And normally the disc herniations are kind of posterior lateral side. So you have symptoms on one side, but most commonly from disc herniation, 40% of the time or so, caught is from acute onset central disc herniation. And those patients typically will present acutely. There are some variants that can kind of have waxing and waning symptoms over time, but the ones that you really need to be diligent about having high index of suspicion is the ones that present acutely, that are just writhing in pain, it's going on both legs, and they're having some bladder dysfunction. Is there anything on physical exam we should be looking out for? You know, doing a good sensory exam of the perianal and perineal area, because that's going to be where your sacral roots are. Rectal exam isn't always as helpful because there's not really like a standard there. So I still think we need to do it if it's, I mean, if there's no tone at all, that's helpful. But if there's some tone there, I don't know that that's as helpful. But getting a good sensory exam of the area is, it's difficult because you're moving the patient around, but you really need to do it to document it. And it helps, I think, when we talk to our spinal surgery colleagues and neurosurgery colleagues, because it shows that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to be good scientists. And again, in the pre-hospital setting, you know, ask your patients, yeah. can you feel yeah. the areas of your bottom when you sit down? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or are you having sexual dysfunction? Yeah. You, you, yeah. you know, people will complain of that to yeah. EMS providers. So. Sure, sure, absolutely. Thank you so much. This was great. Really enjoyed being here. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to talk today and I hope it was helpful. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, very much. Thank you. Thank you.